Welcome to another episode of the Bonfires of Social Enterprise. This is Rami, and today we head over to the Impact Investing Inglenook to chat with Douglas Batanti Stewart about his recent article titled Impact Investing and the Development Professional Learning to Ride the Wave. You can find this published article in the fall 2017 issue of Advancing Philanthropy magazine. By the way, we have a lot of links on this episode in our show notes if you want to learn more, which I'm certain you will after hearing from our guest. Doug shares his very unique perspective on fundraising in the philanthropic space and how that really relates to impact investing. Stay tuned until the very end for a very special song from a Detroit artist. So let's jump right into the conversation with Doug. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're going to talk today about the article you wrote, Impact Investing and the Development Professional. Uh, I love that we're going to talk about this from the framing of a development professional because it's really discussed and you have a lot of experience with it. So um, we'll give links at the end of where this article can be found. So let's dive right in uh, and talk about the overview of the article first. Sure. So um, thank you for thinking enough of the article to, uh, to have a podcast about it. Um, I love your podcast and I think everybody should be listening to this. And I'm also really hopeful that development officers will start listening to your podcast because this is really important stuff. Um, the sort of to start with the why that I felt this article was even necessary um, for me um, having spent 20 years as a development guy working for mostly children's hospitals I loved that work and after doing that for 20 years I was just lucky enough to be asked by a family to help run their family foundation never thought I was gonna do that didn't design my career for that um, but was found myself you know when um, uh, when you've done development long enough, you start to see your role not as raising money, but you see yourself as helping people change the world. And some people do that by contributing money. Other people do that by contributing their careers. And so I had a chance to work up alongside a family. And so I ended up becoming a foundation person, but not because that's where that was my goal. So in my role as a foundation person, I was seeing donors, foundation um, staff, all learning about impact investing and it was really exciting and then when I looked back at my peers um, in the fundraising field I looked at their training sessions and I didn't see anything there and there was one article in this uh, publication of the um, Association of Fundraising Professionals a couple of summers ago it was a cover article and it talked about impact investing but there hasn't been anything in there since or before and I felt like okay, I'm gonna pull the curtain back about what foundations are learning and put it in the context of a development officer so that they could start learning about this because there's opportunities here. And Doug, just for our listeners, in case they don't know the terminology, how do you define a development officer? Sure, so for me, and um, when I think about that, I think of someone who's engaged in raising money for a four impact organization, and I'll, I'll tell you why I use the four impact and not nonprofit, but four impact organizations that are 501c3s, um, and their job is to help raise money for that. Now look, that could be the executive director, that they don't have a development officer or a development person. Um, it could be a volunteer that does that, but doesn't get paid and so forth. So it's really anybody engaged in the fundraising 
enterprise. And just to harken back to what I said a minute ago, so it's anybody who helps people change the world through investing or giving their resources away, whether that's time, talent, or treasure. Um, but the classic definition is a full-time fundraising, this is what I do, this is what I get paid for. That's what this article was really, uh, who that was written for. It was a full-time fundraiser, professional fundraiser. And where would normally a full-time professional fundraiser, a development officer, go to learn about things like this? So there, um, there are national conferences, like for the Association of Fundraising Professionals, there's local chapters, and so they have monthly meetings. There's even um, another organization called the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy, which is another sort of subset of development officers that come together, um, where universities uh, play a role. Um, we have a university that's not too far from here that actually has 450 full-time development professionals. So for them, they, they, instead of buying their training, they make it. So they'll have a training department. And the, that team in different you know, components would meet every month and they would go deep on some kind of topic. Um, but I'm hopeful that a couple things happen because of this article and because of um, this podcast and your attention to it, that development officers will start reading the things donors are reading. Start reading the things the foundations are reading. Um, there's a publication called um, Foundation, um, oh, my friend's going to kill me for not knowing this. Um, it's called the Foundation Review. Foundation Review by Grand Valley and the Johnson Center uh, for Philanthropy at Grand Valley. Foundation Review. It's a peer-reviewed journal. All the foundation folks are reading it, and I think all the development officers should read it. Grantcraft is an online um, uh, system that the Ford Foundation created. And... Foundation folks read it, but I don't think develop, I didn't, I should just own it. I didn't when I was a development officer, I didn't read these things. So they need to start reading the things that donors are reading, right? Yeah. You and I have talked about that before and the four impact. When the development professionals grab hold of this, the good news is, is that there are a lot of resources for them to find that will already talk about all these tools. The Mission Investors Exchange is a great example. Um, there's a number of, and we can talk about those uh, other resources in a bit, and they're in the article too. Um, thankfully, they won't need to see another article from me because there's so much out there um, that's being written for individual investors. Um, and the program folks and foundations and so on. So what I'm hoping is that the development profession will look at this and as they did to planned giving way back when, that they'll grab hold of this tool and all of a sudden it will be one of the tools that they utilize. Mm -hmm. I mean, program-related investments were born the year I was born. Well, I should say they were codified in the tax code the year I was born, 1969. <laughs> but they were actually created before that. The tax code was just, you know, mirroring um, what people were doing. And I'd be happy to give you an example of one yeah. that was even before the tax code hit, if you want it. Yeah, let's do it. You want it? Yeah. This is a little bit self-serving. Uh, it obviously wasn't me because I wasn't born before 1969. <laughs> but in 1965... Um, Max Fisher, the namesake of the foundation that I'm very, very lucky to serve. Um, he and a group of leaders in the Jewish community organized a um, 55 million, actually it was 50 million, 50 million dollar loan to the Jewish Agency for Israel. Now think about this, 1965, a really important time for the state of Israel. Oh yeah. So lots of immigrants coming in, you know, all sorts of things going on. 
the state of Israel is just getting its legs under it and yeah. starting to move and so forth. So they didn't have as much as what certainly what we have right now in terms of health and human services departments and all of that. So the Jewish agency is, even today, is, is, a, is a quasi-governmental agency. Um, but it's a for impact, or what they would have called then an NGO, a non-governmental, but it was almost quasi. So that money came from 11 U.S.-based insurance companies. They collectively lent the Jewish Agency for Israel $50 million for 15 years at 5.5%. When the collateral was, the, the collateral was the good faith and credit of the American Jewish people, which means they didn't have physical collateral that they could just seize. And so that 5.5%, I looked this up, and I'll tell, I'll tell you where you can see this story too, but 5.5% um, at that time was the mortgage rate in 1965. Oh, yeah. And I, the only reason I know that is because I looked it up, and I wanted to see, was this a concessionary loan, right? And it turns out it was, because you can't get a mortgage Right. With no collateral, right. right? So it was concessionary, and it was 15 years, and they paid it off in like 12 or something. Mm. So, um, and if you want more information on that, we do have a Max M. Fisher archives. It's called, it's just maxmfisher.org. And there's, and if you were to look up loan in the Resource Center, you can see all the original documents. You can read the loan agreement. Wow. So, so I, I think that, um, and we can get to this, um, but the, the development profession um, with planned giving and with other instruments inside that kind of like charitable gift annuities and so forth, the development profession has developed tools to respond to donor interests and donor needs. And so that's what planned giving was. And I think now the donors are creating something in terms of impact investing that they want, that now when the development professionals grab hold of this, it's going to accelerate. It's not for everybody. It's not for every group. But it is for a lot of them, I think. I agree. Well, one, that story is absolutely fascinating. It's fun. It's really fun. It's fascinating because it was before the 1967 mm -hmm. war that he got Jerusalem back. That's and right. That's extraordinary to unbelievable. me. Unbelievable. Uh, it's really, really unbelievable. Yeah, there mm -hmm. was just, I love uh, the good faith. But yeah. yeah, so to go back to this donor drive, mm -hmm. and I do would like to come back to some of the terminology in a minute, but I yeah. want to stay on this theme because without question, the drive from the donor or potential investor, I, I'm going to call him the philanthropic-minded yeah. person yes. who wants to move the needle but wants yeah. the accountability is really driving it with estate planning attorneys, mm -hmm. uh, life agents, mm -hmm. program officers, mm -hmm. financial invest uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's whereas before it was either or. Now everyone's sort of forced to have the conversation. Yeah. And it's not happening in isolation just for the very, very wealthy anymore. That's right. I totally agree. Yeah, I've, I've um, you know, we all know that Fidelity Charitable is the largest for impact organization, otherwise known as some people call nonprofits, in the country. So out of the philanthropy 400 on the Chronicle of Philanthropy, they're number one. So they've been hovering in twos and threes, but now they're number one. And so they're amassing donor advised fund assets. And, um, and this is not against Fidelity, what I'm about to say. Charles Schwab, all these firms have these things. The question is, are they advising them philanthropically or are they only advising them on how to put money aside, not putting money to work? And so um, uh, everybody is getting into the, the conversation. And I would draw the analogy of the donor advised fund and the commercial folks going after that in the same way that 
I would if I can lean back on plan giving in 1987 when I first heard about it, because um, that was my first year in college and I got my first development job by accident at Michigan State University and found this profession that I fell in love with. But, you know, back then donors would be talking to a development uh, professional and the development person or a volunteer would have asked them for a gift and they might have said something like this. They might have said, I really want to do this. I want to make this gift, but I just don't, I don't have the cash for it. And you know what stinks about it is that I have this piece of property that if I could just sell it, you know, I mean, it has, it has value to me, but it has this huge basis. So if I sell it, I take a bath on it. I'm going to be killed. And I, I just, so if I could make that a revenue generating property, but I can't because it's this thing and, you know, and all this stuff. And usually back then, then the development officer would say, oh gosh, that's terrible. And then they would go for another sort of immediate cash gift. Then they would go back to the office and maybe tell an attorney there, an estate planning attorney, just maybe something happened. But they wouldn't do what all development officers, officers do now that say, if I could show you a way to create a trust that would allow you to keep that property and get full value of it. Um, and when you pass, we could get the asset. Um, you know, and so now, you know, throw, go, put ourselves 30 years ahead of time. Now we have donors like the two stories in the article. Mm -hmm. So there's Philip and Lauren, mm -hmm. and then there's Jamie and Denise, um, who made a program-related um, uh, investment, a loan to an organization without even being asked. Because what they said was, they got pitched, in Jamie's case, Jamie and Denise, they get pitched a clinic. And Jamie and Denise were saying, you know, look, they were very generous donors to the organization. But they went into that meeting because they had made other commitments. Um, and these aren't fake stories. These are real people mm -hmm. um, that, you know, as a couple, they went in and they're, they're really um, well um, versed in development and so on. They've been asked, they've done leadership gifts. So they said they were only going to give a certain amount, and that was 50000 That's a lot. But they were like, you know, Jamie and Denise are in the car saying, no more, okay? They're like, we love this group, but let's not fall in love again in here and do more than we can. But then they end up, through a series of questions and a series of meetings, giving a $250,000 loan um, because they realized that there was a, um, a revenue stream attached and so that they could loan them the money, shut the campaign down, and they could wait 7 to 10 years for their payback. The, the group didn't say, could we get a $250,000 loan? The group was asking for the gift. So again, this isn't going to work for everybody, but it's analogous. That's why I said in the article that plan giving or impact investing in the program officer, program professional realm in 2017 is like what plan giving looked like in 1987. Mm -hmm. So that's why 30 years later, here's this huge potential mm -hmm. that development officers need to know that donors want, just like they want charitable gift annuities. And I noticed the theme of both of these stories, I am in full agreement with donors, is that mm -hmm. both of these uh, couples were very intentional about attempting to solve and help the organization they're trying to fund. And they, what ended up happening is their capital ends up recycling to catalyze something else in the future. That's right. This is very attractive to donors, it is. this idea. It is. And so I, I love that you said that. Um, so in terms of the recycling, um, so um, I think sometimes when people, especially development professionals, I've shared this article with um, two of my friends who happen to lead two very large university development offices. 
trying because I met with them before like gosh why don't you guys do this and they're like it's complicated and we're worried about it cannibalizing our annual donors because if they start investing will they give and there's some concern about that and I say man that's the same thing we were saying about planned giving and now look so, um, the, and then when others think about impact investing, they think about the high-flying market rate side of it, more like the mission-related investing, which is, which, you know, if we were to, you know, define these things, program-related investments being concessionary returns so that if you lose it, you can mark it off as a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the market side, you lose it, you lose it, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're going for market rate returns, this article... Talking to plant, talking to development professionals is about the concessionary side, mm-hmm. and it won't be for everyone. Um, a women's shelter that's taking in women um, from um, domestic abuse and all these things that we're hearing so much more about nowadays—they may not have an opportunity for this. Um, so when we say the donor, we are talking about donors who are, to your point, they want to do this, and many of them are direct cash donors in addition. Our first PRI was to an organization that the family had just made. When I say our, I mean the foundation that I serve. The first PRI that the foundation I serve made um, was to a group that the family had just given a half million dollars to. And then they said, would you be interested in a loan for another 200 Mm -hmm. to, for seven years, use the money to do exactly what you were doing here and then give it back to us? And um, I'm probably talking too much, but I have one other example no, of where, where this makes sense. Because you said, you know, the money recycling. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we also know about investors, um, in the truest sense of the word, um, meaning an actual financial investor, they always have a cash account. Mm-hmm. There's always some, there's, there's for cash flow purposes, there's this certain amount of cash sitting there. And um, so foundations have that, that have endowments, um, individuals have it. Imagine you're, you live in a small town and your small town um, gets a federal grant for a certain program. It's a violence prevention program. And like any good federal grant, you have to do it and then they pay you, okay. right? Okay. And so the, your small town now can't do it. And because of the four impact organizations that they're using don't have the cash flow to front it. So everybody says, darn. And then they, quote, leave money on the table. Mm-hmm. So an investor... Or a donor who has a cash account and has X sitting in there, that might be a small portion. And all they're doing is parking their cash in a different place. It's a federal grant. And so they're just helping with cash flow, zero interest. But then that money, instead of sitting in, you know, Goliath National Bank, you know, just to use a funny, you know, instead of sitting in Goliath National Bank, it actually does social, creates an impact, and then the money comes back. And you're not even paying rent on it. I mean, how much are you getting in your cash account? Right. So Some are negative, right? Yeah, right. some are negative. Right. And so that's just, to your point, it's, that's not even recycling. That's almost like putting something to use that wasn't going to be used. That's it's right. just going to sit there. It's queuing up an asset, and it's by queuing the asset and putting it into the right puzzle for a season, yeah. it multiplies the already existing puzzle. That's a great way to put I it. I think that there's... Uh, you quote in this, you talk about the almost the fear of that it's too complicated mm-hmm. uh, that program development officers face. They think, oh man, I'm going to need to be huge or get a lot of education for this. And it really isn't that 
complicated. Will mm-hmm. you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So I think um, you mentioned, um, and we talked a little bit about that this won't be for every group, right? right? And so, and again, just to focus our conversation. So, um, in, and I love the work that you all are doing around social enterprise, which is a broad definition. And it's really important because sometimes a social enterprise might be um, organized as a limited liability company. It could be a for-profit, could be a for-impact. They're, they're going for social enterprise, and then they care about the legal, just depending on what they're trying to achieve. In this conversation, primarily because we're talking about development officers and development professionals, um, we're really talking about for-impact organizations. So to take that um, uh, as the basis, because yeah, this is relatively complicated. Mm-hmm. But for the development officer or professional, it should be pretty straightforward. Uses of capital. Mm-hmm. Do we have, um, you know, in business there are, you know, um, weighted average costs of capital where people are like, well, we're going to borrow this money because we're going to make so much more than the 7% we'd have to pay for it. So that's our cost of capital, the 7%. Or we have treasury dollars, which only cost us our next best project, and we'll put that there. Usually in four impact organizations, they have two sources of capital, new donors or our retained earnings. You know, we might have some programmatic revenue coming in fee for service, but the regular you know, organization um, that most of us have worked for, they have new donations coming in or they have reserve. Usually the reserve isn't enough for you to borrow from yourself. Okay. And so when we try to do projects, even if they have a payback, like a new piece of equipment, that's going to save us money down the road. Um, we end up having to either raise money for it or borrow from ourselves. Well, what if that piece of equipment increased your efficiency around something where you would actually save money? If you borrow that money from a donor at 0%, then it doesn't reduce your working capital. You can still do it. So I'll give you an example. And this one, I have to go to the healthcare field because it's where I um, spent most of my time raising money. And it is complicated, and I can hear my colleagues in the development field in healthcare saying, it's not that simple. But here's, here's a, a relatively simplified example. If, if you are a four-impact healthcare clinic, and you need a piece of equipment that you know you're going to make revenue on, because you've got Medicaid reimbursements, you've got other things going on, maybe it's a dental clinic um, for people who can't afford dental care, and you know that there's a return, at some point you're going to break even on that, but you go out and raise the money so you can get the equipment, and that's hard to raise that money sometimes. But if you could get one donor to say, I'll lend you that money for two years or for three years, because they have a mission that's related to yours, and they're, they're willing to let you borrow that money, now you can raise the money for something else, and then have that revenue stream pay it back. Who else does that? The for-profits do that all the time. Mm-hmm. They have money that instead of, you know, putting it into that piece of equipment, they borrow it because mm-hmm. in that case, it's less, ex- they're getting more revenue than they are paying interest, right? So I hope that wasn't too complicated. I don't think it is, but it's sort of, if you were going to borrow this money or if you could, then, and you could use that fundraising for something else and borrow that, now you have more capital and you mm-hmm. just have a different source. I would echo that having spent 23 years in the traditional financial industry that 
It is a different bucket of money. Mm-hmm. I want to encourage those out there thinking about, you mentioned cannibalizing one source or another. We find when uh, you invite a p- prospective donor to the table to participate in something like you just discussed, hey, gosh, I can lend you this uh, money for the piece of equipment to help make you more sustainable. We need to keep in mind that donors are very interested in the health of your organization. They want to see you keep going, but it is definitely a different bucket of money in their mind and with the financial advisors. Let's take a side step with the officer. So two two things that that you've heard me say, and and Rami, you and I have talked about this a little bit, and I appreciate you giving me, and I should probably keep this to under 30 seconds on your very important podcast and the people who are listening. Um, so two things. One is nonprofit and the other is officer. And the, the word nonprofit, a handful of us have been going after for a long time. And even Bill Drayton, um, who started the Ashoka Fellowships, so, you know, has been going after the word nonprofit for a while. So um, I just want to just sort of be very clear that this is not something that started with us. Um, and then the officer was something very, very recent. So briefly, I just don't believe that this sector, or I put it in the positive, I believe this sector deserves a name that truly reflects what it is, as opposed to simply saying what it's not. And while many people think that profit is bad, such that you could say nonprofit is good, and many people say that nonprofit has um, a lot of positive connotations, I'd say I agree with both of those things in pieces and parts. Not all, because I think profit actually can be a very good thing. And uh, I grew up um, in a family of academics, so I lived off the for impact sector my whole life. But friends who have parents and so on that were working for GM and so forth, you know, that's for profit. So that funded their education. So all fine. But I really think that we shouldn't simply be defined by what we're not. So for me, I want to be for something. And a good friend of mine, Ron Kagan, another good friend, Shirley Stancato. Ron runs the Detroit Zoo. Shirley runs New Detroit. Um, we got together and we're like, well, should it be social impact? And then we're like, well, Ron said, remember, there's environment in it too. Yeah. Right? So he's like, so we said, okay, for impact. So we would have a name like our sister sector, for impact. And uh, I know I'm over my 30 seconds and we have to get to the officer. No, no. But let me, <laughs> get time. let me just say it's interesting when I've been floating that to some of my friends um, that work in the commercial, private commercial space, they'll say, but hey, some of the best businesses we know were designed to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And I say, you're absolutely right. And they're like, so we make an impact too. And I said, that's awesome. Report it. Because right. you know what? Our sector makes a profit too. I mean, what do you think? Some of these healthcare systems that are C3s that have $7 billion in endowment, that's retained earnings. So really, if we had to argue, we'd have to call ourselves the non-owner's equity sector. Right. Oh, there you go. That's right. what we'd have to do. And that, that sucks. So it's like, what are we for? So if you're if you make an impact, report it. Right. Companies like Strategic Staffing Solutions, they're a really impactful company. And they're starting to report what they're doing from an impact standpoint. So um, so that's the that's the pitch on for impact. So we never we we, um, we just the group that agrees, and not all my even my own team agrees with this, by the way. Um, but that that's why we say for for uh, profit instead of nonprofit. And you use the term C three which is an abbreviation for the 501c3 for that's those right. that might not be in the US. Yeah. Yeah, so good that's, point. That's our IRS code. And, and for those that, that are listening from other countries, we had um, I pitched this in front of a group of folks who were um, not simply from the US and including Israel and a couple of co- um, countries in Africa, it was South Africa, it was Zambia and Uganda. 
And I pitched this, and they're like, you know, why do you in the States always have to come up with a new name for something? Why don't you use ours? NGO. And I was like, non-governmental organizations? I was like, there's another non. Now that helps. We do some work in Lusaka, Zambia. So it's clear when there's an NGO 10 years ago, because you could say, this isn't the government. And they'd be like, oh, I get it. But now, even Lusaka and the outerlying provinces are becoming more commercial. I think the NGO is going to start losing its um, pull in other um, countries because it'll be like, okay, well, the commercial sector is also non-governmental. All right. So, um, but anyways, NGO is still better than nonprofit to me. And uh, so... I always think about the non, the NGO, because we've done some work globally as mm -hmm. well. It gets tricky because they're sometimes receiving funding from their government, so it gets all, <laughs> it's yeah. half one dozen or the other, you know, it's like, it is. I like yours, for impact. It is. How about the officer? We've had some laughs behind the scenes mm -hmm. about this officer. I love this story you're about to tell yeah. about your revelation about the word officer. So, um, yeah, so um, for your, um, for um, those, for, for you that are listening, so um, this is something, our work, we very much, like many um, um, social justice-minded and equity-minded um, social change makers, we want to listen to the people inside the issues as much as we can. The people who have dedicated their lives to it, the people who have lived experience with it, and the people who live inside it and deal with it every day. And so to make a, um, a nine-year story much shorter than that, um, the family has always had this ethos um, to listen closely. And so we've, we've done, to use some shorthand, we've done some co-design um, work with our partners in a neighborhood called Brightmoor here in Detroit, Northwest Detroit. And for those that haven't heard of co-design, if you, if you Google co-design in Stanford, you'll run into a lot of stuff around co-design. But it's a fancy word to say that you're going to talk to the people who use it first and then design it. And so we had been involved in um, early childhood for a long time. And we were working with a set of women who live in, live in poverty, some of them, um, who are running small businesses, taking care of kids. And so after handfuls of years where we were asking them what they were interested in and we were showing them grant proposals saying, do you think this is going to work before we would fund it? We said, we should start with them first. They've worked with these four impact organizations long enough. Let's say that we're going to sit down with them and say, what do you want? And then we'll find the impact organizations that do it instead of bringing them grant proposals from impact orgs and say, what do you think? That the end of that process, fast forward, is that um, the woman who did that work with us and facilitated it, um, she was such an amazing resource that when we asked the rest of the women, you know, from this process, what would you like most, the biggest outcome? And they said, we want more time with Cam. Cam was the woman who, run it, who ran it. So we hired Cam as what we called a network officer. So here's the reason why officer is a problem for us now. So Cam's doing work in the neighborhood, and the women pull her aside and say, tell us about your title. Tell us why, why you're called that. And she said, oh, well, a network is, and she starts to describe a network. They're like, no, 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 no. We know what a network is. We get that. Why do you say, why are you called an officer? And she said, well, you know, chief executive officer, chief operating officer, it's just a term that's used in foundation speak, and I guess it's, it's in the corporate world and so forth. And they're like, but you understand. And they were like kind of holding her hand in a way saying, you're from where we're from. And she said, uh, this is one, one particular provider. She said, you and I both have to train our sons how to act in front of police officers. And so I'm telling my son that when he gets pulled over by a police officer, that he has to start saying sir, that he has to code switch 
to whatever you want, sir. And so she said, what I'm asking you is, am I supposed to comply with you? Is that what, is that what the Fisher family is trying to tell us? And it was like, okay, that's a break. And here we are working in community where mothers and fathers and aunties and grandmothers have to train their children how to act in front of police officers or parole officers or child protective officers. And so here they are, here's a program officer walking in, which many times don't look like they do. That was a break. So we asked them, so I can stop there, but they, they did help us address it, if you want to hear that real yeah, quick. Yeah. So we said, oh my God, <laughs> right? We're like, oh my God. No, my title is executive director, not chief executive officer, but that doesn't matter. We have program officers, associate program officers, senior program, you know, et cetera. There's only seven of us, so we have one of a couple of those and two of a couple others, but in any event. So we said, well, why don't we ask them what they want the title to be then? And Cam went back. They came up with 23 choices. They had two focus groups, if not three. Um, I think Cam had one around her dinner table, and you know, but these were these were real focus groups. And took the 23, whittled it down to three, and then instead of picking one, they came back to us and said, "Here are the top three, and we know that you need to code switch with us, just like we have to code switch with you when we're in our communities." So look, we love all three of these. So you take these and go back to your mostly white privileged world with all sorts of respect. Cause they, and, and look, we've, we've had hard conversations and they said, you choose the one that's gonna resonate the most with your peers. Cause we'll take any one of these three. But they knocked out 20 other alternatives and said this. So the title that will stick is network partner. Partner. And so we'll start, and we never call people grantees cause most of the time people only call themselves grantees when a foundation is there. Uh, you know, for all the money I raised from foundations, I never called myself a so-and-so grantee unless I was in their offices. So um, we're going to change our titles from program officer to program partner. We still haven't figured out how to do the gradations of that. Like, are you an associate partner? Right. And then director instead of director of programs, because that doesn't make sense anyways for us. We'll have director of partnerships. Wow. And so they'll partner with funders. They're going to partner. I know that sometimes that sounds like fundraising, but it's actually really underscoring what our relationships are. They're partnerships. And we just happen to have the financial resource. They have the human resource. They have parts right. of the intellectual resource. It's a lot longer than I thought. Right. I'm sorry. but No, no, was, no. Uh, I feel like this is really important because unless we, in the broader scope, if we lift ourselves up to more of a, a big macro view, impact investing works when there's thoughtful observation going on and uh, a little bit of a jump down the pride ladder you know some yeah nice some, way to put it some humble i mean pride's a stinker it'll get us all in trouble <laughs> me included but i noticed yeah. that if we humble ourselves and we really understand uh, impact investing works best if we can just stop and pay attention to things like that that many would overlook i yeah. i personally want to thank you for taking that seriously and doing yeah. something about it. That's why you're one of the change makers. Yeah. Well, can I, can I just share one last thing? And I don't yeah. know if we're wrapping up, but um, there's a quote from a woman that I learned um, something dramatic from that, where this comes from. And it, and it can go right back to impact investing in the words there. So um, one of, I was sitting with Mrs. Fisher, Marjorie, the other namesake of the foundation I'm lucky to serve. I was sitting with her daughter, Julie, sitting at her bedside while she was going through some thank you notes that she was receiving, that she had received from um, a handful of families 
whose children she supported through high school and college. Mm. And, you know, there was a, a group called Take Stock in Children uh, in Florida that is an amazing group. So they were the ones that actually did the work. Mrs. Fisher provided the resources. She was looking through a thank you note, and under her breath she said, and I'll never forget this, for the years that I've spent at donor sides, when they've had breakthroughs and when they've cried about the impact that they've made, or they've, they've been excited about the legacy they've extended, I've never heard a donor say this before. She said, under her breath while looking at a note, I will never be able to give enough to make up for how grateful I am for these families who have allowed me into their lives. Mm, wow. Right? So I just want to say it one more time so you don't have to back up the podcast or whatever. Because I needed to hear that. Because I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. She said, I will never. This is a woman who had everything. Right? So as what people would say. But what she was looking for was to make an impact. She couldn't do it alone. And so she had the humility to know. This is Marjorie Fisher. She knew, had the humility to know that she would never be able to give enough to make up for how grateful she felt for the families who allowed them, allowed her into their lives. And so when we go back to impact investing and we go back to all of this, um, the investors who champion a 3X, 2X, 1X, 0X, and you notice how it's smaller there, not bigger, that they need to be thanking the people who do this work every day. Mm -hmm. They need to be thanking the families that go to the meetings for whatever the intervention is. That, that's what we call it. They don't call it an intervention. They call it, this is justice. And you can't, you know, so maybe someday two things will happen with impact investing. One thing is, is that we know that all investing has an impact. It can be positive or negative. Negative, we just call it an externality. And then people don't pay for that. Imagine if all investing took in the full impact of it, positive, negative, and we just called it investing. And some of it has a positive impact, some of it doesn't. Then we'd have four impact, four profits. We could actually see it. It's like, report it, guys. You know why they don't report it? Because they're just not disciplined enough. The for profits, they just don't have enough discipline to measure their impact. Yeah, Remember, right. that's what they used to say about us. Yes. So anyways, but it's the humility. And I just, I mean, I, I want to share that quote because I want, um, I wanted you to hear it, Rami. Because yeah. you're a partner of ours. You actually are involved yeah. in a couple of our investments. Yeah. And that's part of our ethos. And I don't get to share that story very often yeah. in that quote. That's I have powerful. written about it. Um, and I can give you a link to it. But um that's the kind of humility then that underscores all of this and also recognizes the importance of the development officer yeah. in this mix. So they're not begging for money. They're right. not taking people's money. They're developing opportunities for people to change the world. And they need to look at this impact investing work and see themselves in it. Yes, absolutely. That's a great place to close out for now. Right. And um, I want to thank you. I'd like to come back and periodically check in with you on your observations as a regular guest if you're willing sure well only if you only if you see it uh, worthy you should talk about what those are before we go right, online right, right? right, right. i'm happy to right okay so very let kind me, very let kind. me get one more um let me and i'm going to go back and insert this okay. um doug what would be a strategy that you would give to a, a program officer who says gosh uh, what do i say to my donor when they say um 
you know, why wasn't I offered the opportunity to fund the equipment? Um, are you using my donation to pay back the other guy? Oh, yeah. Right. They get, there's a little bit of uh, nerves there. Mm -hmm. And really, in my mind, it's just a matter of, of language, of how you set that expectation. Right. Um, since we were, this article is really attempting to start to encourage the program development folks, what could you speak into that? I know mm -hmm. I didn't. We didn't ask that ahead of time, but no. I feel like it's real yeah. for them. You know. So um, I think transparency in fundraising and development is really important. And so if um, and and um, the professionals who the professionals who love it as much as I do feel the same way. And so I think. Um, this is a new body of work, right? So if somebody were to say, if a donor were to say, well, why didn't I get that payback? And why didn't I? So those were the kind of questions that people were asking when the charitable gift annuity was created. Right. It's like, well, why didn't I give you the money and then create an annuity that came back to me? Why didn't you talk to me about that? So, and so I just gave it directly. Well, if we create a menu of opportunities for donors, and this is what development professionals do so well, those that are raising the money, and be clear about what capital we need and why. So that, yeah, for this equipment, we're, we already raised, let's say it's a $200,000, or let's just make it simple, it's a $50,000 piece of equipment. If they already got $25,000 of donors for it, and then another donor stepped up and said, I'll give you the other 25, but I want mine back. Yeah, they should go talk to the other donors and tell them that, look, we have a chance to do it this way, are you comfortable? So that they're not in the same deal. So that they can, and if all those other donors say, we wanna loan it too, well then you have to figure out how you're gonna do that. But I would be clear on the front end and say that this is like with Jamie and Denise, this is a clinic that within seven years, it will be, it'll, it'll pay back what we put into it and we'll start making margin. Um, okay, that means somebody could loan the money to it. So I think they just have to be clear on the front end. And one of the things we shy away in the four impact space is, so, oh my gosh, we're gonna make money on that. Like we're gonna get revenue back. The Catholic nuns that started a lot of these healthcare institutions would say no margin, no mission. That's right. You know, so, it's, so I'm not saying that everything has a margin, but if you have something that does, that could pay it back, well then let's just be clear. Right. And let's be really upfront with our donors about it on the front end and not worry about it cannibalizing. Just say, we have all these opportunities. You should decide what's best for you. Right. And then backing that up one step further for comfort for the program development officer is understanding what is the revenue model around that piece of equipment or yep. that project so that they know the math. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so when discussing it with a donor, you know, they say they can make the argument like, yep. gosh, I won't have to keep coming back and asking you for this. Right. If you'll help me. Yeah. Turn this into something that's an asset instead of a liability. I agree. Well, thank you. Is there mm -hmm. anything else that you want to add on? This was really um, good. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Um, anything well, else we might have missed? Because I'll piece it in where it sure. fits. I, well, I think that the um, one of the things that I would want to tell a development or a fundraiser um, who, who reads this article is to um, realize the important role that they play in the foreign impact sector mm -hmm. and that they are not simply tools of the administration to raise money that they stand between people who want to change the world who have the capability to get it done and the insights from the people who live it 
and the people who want to change the world in that same way, mm. but they don't have the capability, they have the resources, they have the financial resources. Right. And so when they hear impact investing, I want them to really hear the last paragraph of this article, which is that some people think impact investing is going to change the world because the investment people are going to grab hold of it, and that's true. But I actually think that this is going to be more true, that impact investing is going to change the world because development professionals are going to grab hold of this for impact organizations and they're going to accelerate it and they're going to introduce people that just, oh, I'll loan that portion and I'm going to give you more, just like you said about the other, um, those 400 investors that started giving more. So I think it'll be the development officers and the four the four impacts mm. that are going to accelerate this far faster than the for profit. Yeah. That's what I would want them to hear. Well, Doug, that was very informative. As I mentioned, all the listeners, please jump over to our show notes for lots of links to various articles and the mentioned associations today as we chatted. Now, let's see what we have for you today in the form of a song to end this episode. Oh my goodness, this is one of my new favorite songs. Here is the artist group, Infatuations, and their song, Let It Ride. Thanks again to our friends at Assemble Sound for the song. Until next time, keep those bonfires burning. Got 
Wait a no, I'll be standing here for better.